Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 125, recorded on July 9th, 2019. Today we will talk about e-scooters again across all Europe, about Atomico's Angel program, about the European VC landscape, about podcasting and much more. We have also prepared a pre-recorded interview with Sarah Usinger, who is now helping to build up the tech ecosystem in Albania in all places. Uh, Natalie, what do you know about uh, Albanian uh, tech ecosystem? Well, the only thing I know about the Albanian tech ecosystem is a really great blog post that Sarah wrote after she returned from there last year. So I'm really excited to see what she's working on now. And she's such a great advocate for the ecosystem there. And I think that there's a lot of really interesting opportunities that in places that we don't necessarily look all the time. So it's really wonderful that we have someone like her that's that's working to enable that ecosystem. So, in case you have forgotten or never knew our names, I am your host, Andrew Degeler, and uh, today I'm joined by our research lead, Natalie Novik. How is it going, Natalie? It's going really well, and today I just wanted to kind of highlight the big news story that just dropped, um, which is about British Airways, which has received the largest GDPR fine to date. So they've just been fined $230 million. And this fine is a penalty for a data privacy breach of 500,000 people last year. And this fine represents 1.5% of British Airways global turnover for the year. And today it's also been announced that Marriott hotels will also be penalized for breaching GDPR. It's also expected the company will receive a nine-figure penalty. They think it'll be $123 million. And why I'm bringing up these GDPR things is because these fines really stand out when you compare them to GDPR rulings on big tech. And Google was hit by only a 50 million euro fine earlier this year for a competition breach. So this 50 million charge is really minuscule when you compare it to total revenues. British Airways plans to appeal, but just another reminder for everyone, don't GDPR, watch out, take care and um, make sure that everything you're doing um, is clean and protects privacy. Yeah, I'm really I'm really happy that uh, things are moving uh, in that direction. It's interesting that uh, still this uh, 230 million dollars uh, fine is not the maximum amount that they could have to pay because the maximum amount as far as I remember is like 4%, right? Right. So, so the maximum would have been something uh, in the ballpark of 500 million. So, yeah, British Airways uh, is is having it uh, pretty uh, pretty lightly. Well, it, it's very slim margins in that industry. And I think if they find them the maximum, it would be a real concern about viability of the company, I imagine, if they were unsuccessful in, in their appeal. Yeah. I mean, it's still probably going to take months, if not years, you know, for all this to settle down and any final decision to be uh, to be made. Right. 
But yeah, great news nevertheless. And uh, it is, of course, a little bit of cheating uh, from our side to talk about these uh, stories because we were supposed to talk about it last week, right? And uh, this story happened just now. And uh, in my segment, I also have a bunch of stories uh, happening uh, this week. But I mean, it would have been would have been stupid not to talk about it. So <laughs> the, the 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 boundaries are getting pushed a little bit here. So uh, let us uh, move on. And so my big uh, thing for today is e-scooters, as usual. I mean, it's going to be a monthly thing, I think, now, just because somehow it's so fascinating for me and there is always uh, stuff to talk about. And uh, last week I talked a little bit about uh, how I used uh, this uh, tier e-scooters in Cologne. And a month ago I was uh, giving a sort of a more uh, wide update on, on what's going on. So today is going to be another update uh, that will consist of a few different parts and i will start with uh, funding news so uh, last week uh, the company called dot uh, with a double t uh, raised 30 million euros from uh, equity ventures and aspers ventures and a bunch of existing investors and this uh, uh, this is a round that brings the total amount raised by the startup to 50 million euros which is generally on par with other similar companies but currently dot only has its scooters in four cities and that's almost an order of magnitude less uh, than its peers who raised uh, a similar amount of money so that's a bit strange and also notably uh, the Amsterdam-based startup is not actually operational in Amsterdam or anywhere else in the Netherlands which I'm quite happy about of course uh, but still but I will talk about uh, the competitive landscape in a bit I just I, I put uh, together a few uh, things for that but first let's finish the financial update so I will, again, as I said, uh, cheat a little bit uh, here and mention a new story from this week. And the one that's the one about uh, wind mobility, uh, raising uh, 50 million US dollars in funding. And this is a funding round from existing investors, which include uh, uh, China-based Source Code Capital and uh, Europe's HV Holzbring Ventures. So in case you're getting lost in all this uh, different European scooter companies, like I sometimes do, uh, here's a reminder, uh, wind is based in Berlin. Berlin and Barcelona, and its scooters are the ones of a bright uh, yellowish-green uh, color uh, with uh, uh, dark blue letters uh, saying wind on them. Next up, Bolt, formerly known as uh, Taxify, and strictly speaking, of course, it's not an e-scooter startup. Uh, it's a ride-sharing company that also works uh, with e-scooters, among other things. But uh, still, uh, the company, which is a unicorn, mind you, uh, has just raised a lot of money, but it won't say how much. Uh, so what we know is that its previous round was 175 million US dollars, and I would guess uh, that the current one is probably bigger. So we're talking about uh, uh, at least... Uh, 200 million US dollars. And of course, not all the money will go to the e-scooter division, but I would expect a sizable portion uh, to be earmarked for uh, this so-called micromobility initiatives. Now, this is the financial part done, and let us talk about the state of the art in the e-scooter industry in Europe. So money-wise, uh, the leaderboard uh, that I put together for myself in the notes looks like this. First goes the uh, Swedish startup Voy, and uh, that one has raised 76 million euros. Then comes Wind, with a total of 65 million euros. Then comes Cirque, uh, formerly known as Flash, uh, with a 55 million euros, then DOT with 50 million euros, and then TIER, uh, the one that I wrote last week, with 32 million euros. 
Now, geography-wise, German startup Cirque, the one formerly known as Flash, as I just said, is the leader here. Uh, it operates in 33 cities. Tier operates in 31 cities. Voy is in 30 cities. Wind does not uh, give the direct number, but they say it's more than 20 cities. And then Dot is in four cities that I mentioned before. Uh, so Bolt, uh, which I also talked about before, uh, is, is also in four cities with its e-scooters. It's Madrid in Spain, then uh, Riga in Latvia, and uh, Tallinn and Pärnu in Estonia. What happened to Bolt scooters in Paris? I actually checked with them today just to uh, know the exact list of the cities, and they're not in Paris actually. But it, it, it's it, it's good that you it's good that you ask because uh, they did uh, announce uh, the the launch, right? So this is something to investigate uh, for us uh, uh, for uh, taking you in the later pieces or the podcast. So this is the situation. So uh, geography and money-wise, and uh, also if you want to sort of visualize uh, the picture, uh, so uh, the, the nice people over at Sifted, uh, they put together a custom Google map uh, with all the locations where some of these companies operate. Uh, check it out in the show notes. I will uh, leave the link there. But it has to be said uh, that uh, these things do change very rapidly. Uh, so if you're interested in a particular city or startup, uh, better double-check on their website, of course. Now, the next two logical developments that I would expect to happen are for Tier to raise more money because it's just at 32 million euros while the rest uh, are uh, over 50 or even 70 million euros. And then for DOT uh, to expand into another 20 to 30 new cities. And I wouldn't be surprised if the latter happens uh, in just one go, really. And I would also sort of forecast uh, that uh, both developments should be expected to happen uh, before the end of October uh, this year or something. Uh, I will be in Amsterdam uh, this week and probably next week as well. And And I would really love to talk to the people from DOT. So I will try to arrange an interview and we will run it later in the podcast. And that's pretty much the update that I wanted to give. But I also got a couple of extra morsels that are not necessarily connected to the uh, financial or geographical parts of this uh, long, admittedly long segment. Uh, So bear with me for a little bit longer. It's really fascinating. First, who is actually using the electric scooters? There has always been this argument uh, that e-scooters would significantly reduce the number of cars on the roads. But it may not be the case after all, at least not in France. Uh, I, I want to quote here a survey of uh, 4,500 e-scooter riders in uh, Paris, Lyon and Marseille who were asked what they used e-scooters for and how they would get to their destination if uh, there were no scooters available. So it turns out that only 19% used Uh, their e-scooters for uh, normal uh, commute to work or school. Uh, But at the same time, more than 40% of the riders were people from out of town. So tourists or people coming for business or anything like that. As for the second question, and uh, I quote... 44% of respondents said that they would have walked, 12% said they would have biked, and 30% would have used public transport, end of quote. So it does not really look like e-scooters will solve the traffic issues in the near future, uh, which is too bad, of course, but still, I don't think it means that e-scooters are necessarily 
very bad or anything. It's just uh, that uh, the argument about uh, solving uh, the pollution from cars is not necessarily valid, uh, at least not in the entire in the entirety of Europe. And another story, a relatively entertaining one, uh, this time to finish off uh, this segment. This one's coming from Germany, uh, where the e-scooters recently got officially allowed and regulated. Uh, we talked about it before. And for the story, I will quote uh, Deutsche Welle. Uh, the quote begins, A 28-year-old man in the western German town of Erkeland made headlines across Germany after he followed his phone's GPS and rode his scooter onto the highway. The man rode for around 7 kilometers until he was escorted off the highway by two cars where the police were waiting. The quote ends. As far as I understand from elsewhere, uh, the the guy actually got fined, obviously, because you can't uh, ride on a German uh, autobahn uh, on anything that can't uh, go f- at least uh, 60 kilometers per hour, uh, while the e-scooters are limited by 20 kilometers per hour. But what I wanted to also say, it's really nice that two drivers on that motorway, they cared enough to keep the riders safe and drive. Uh, so one car basically drove uh, in front of the scooter and the other car uh, drove uh, behind the scooter just to uh, keep the guy safe and make sure uh, no car would get uh, in between and uh, no car would uh, uh, harm uh, harm the rider. And then uh, they did that uh, up until he could get out of the autobahn on the, on the next exit. It. So people are generally nice. Let's uh, not uh, forget about it. And this is something I wanted to uh, finish the segment with. Uh, what do you think, Natalie? I think that story is crazy and really kind of terrifying to find yourself on the German Autobahn on an e-scooter. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. But there's a few things that stand out to me about the survey statistics you mentioned from that survey that was done in France. I think it's important to highlight that a proportion here of e-scooter riders are using scooters as alternatives to existing public transport or walking. So every scooter used as an alternative is increasing traffic and speed on the road. Also, a large percentage of e-scooter riders are visitors to the city. So this brings up to me some safety concerns, as it's reasonable to assume those visitors are more likely to be unfamiliar with the city layout and how to navigate around it. So the riders on the scooters might not be the best suited to be using them. Similarly, the fact that a large proportion of riders are renting scooters when they're visiting also suggests that e-scooters are not largely being substituted for existing modes of transport in large numbers. So these findings might indicate that locals who already have existing modes of transport are happy with them, aren't necessarily jumping to e-scooters, and that these e-scooters aren't necessarily fulfilling a critical urban need. And it's really fascinating to see where this goes, especially from an investor standpoint, because it doesn't look like things are slowing down anytime soon. But what we actually are seeing is, especially in Paris, is oversaturation of the market. You've had At one time, there was eight e-scooter companies operating in the city, and now some of them have pulled out of Paris because there was just too many alternative scooters for riders to be using. So I think that's a very interesting dynamic that will be um, very, very fascinating to follow along. You have kind of oversaturation in some areas, and you have really no e-scooters in certain other areas. And I understand Voy is in talks with the British government 
to try to change their policy on e-scooters. So that's something I will be um, very interested in following along as well. Oh yeah, and I don't think uh, Voy is the only one, really. I, I would, uh, I, I suspect that uh, most of the major uh, e-scooter uh, companies are all trying to sort of uh, push for a change uh, in the regulation in the UK to uh, make uh, uh, to make e-scooters allowed on the roads. And I really do appreciate uh, that uh, the UK government is not uh, caving into the pressure. Well, not yet, at least. Andre, do you have a favorite e-scooter company? It's a good question. No, I don't think so, because I only tried like a couple of them. And for me, the choice would be most probably based on just the quality of the of the scooter. So no, not really. Do you? I do have a favorite European e-scooter company, I'll admit. And it is Voy, because they really do make a point of having dialogue with the cities they operate in before they come into the city. And I've had a number of conversations with folks over at Voy, and they're really concerned about making e-scooters arrive in cities in the right way. And this is something that they really care about, and they've really put a commitment behind it. Um, and so I think um, that's something that I really appreciate about their approach. Great. Well, I mean, I'm sold. I do believe that uh, they do care about the urban environment uh, and all that. But I'm just, as I said uh, last week, I think I'm not sure that uh, this is actually what we need in cities. But again, e-scooters themselves as uh, vehicles, if they are owned by the riders, I think they can be uh, a viable a viable solution uh, for any situations where you cannot or don't want to ride a bike. Not going anywhere. <laughs> nope, not at all. Now, what did you want to talk about, Natalie? Yeah, so last week it was announced that Caramel, an early stage startup from France, they are a platform that helps parents find activities for their children. They raised a 500,000 euro investment round led by Kima Ventures. Also participating in that round was Roxanne Farzev, who you might know as one of tech.eu's co-founders, and she's also leading Station F in Paris. Andre had her on the podcast a few weeks back as well. So this announcement stood out to me because Roxanne is a member of the first cohort of Atomico's Angel Program. It was announced last fall at the end of November. And I haven't heard anything about the program since the launch when it really did receive a lot of press and they were on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt um, and a number of other locations. So I wanted to look into the program a little bit and kind of see what some of um, the, the outcomes were. And for a recap, the Atomico Angels program is headed by Sophia Benz. Sophia is an active angel investor who's backed 34 different com companies. Before she was a partner at Atomico, she spent eight years at Spotify and she was with the company from their earliest days until they became a unicorn. And she has a very keen interest in supporting female founders as well as companies at the very early stage. So it was a really natural fit for her to be leading this program. And the Atomico Angels program was designed to help create a new generation of angel investors that would work to discover some of the most ambitious new founders around Europe. 
And a goal of the program was really to identify different types of founders working on projects at an earlier stage than those that generally come up on Atomico's radar, as well as those operating in geographies where Atomico doesn't have a full-time presence. And at the time, the program received a lot of positive attention because it was seen as an innovative way to open up angel investing to a wider pool of people and improve diversity investment and presumably eventually deal flow. And ideally getting more people involved in angel investing in European companies, which is always very beneficial to growing an ecosystem. And the program gave 12, and I'll quote, outstanding individuals from across the European tech ecosystem, end quote. They each received $100,000 to invest in companies of their choice. And there were a few exceptions of things they weren't allowed to invest in. Uh, They can't invest in, quote, unethical, end quote, companies such as those in the alcohol industry, which was uh, one of the, the few they highlighted. And the individuals that were chosen for Atomico's first cohort are a selection of pretty high profile individuals from eight different countries. Many of them are founders themselves currently in the process of building their own companies and growing their firms to a later stage. So it was always kind of um, interesting to see how they would balance angel investing with growing and scaling their own companies. Because among them, they include Rohan Silva of Second Home, which recently scaled to the U.S. They're opening a new campus in Hollywood later this summer. It's received a lot of press already. Um, Emily Brooke of Barrel is a company that operates bike sharing schemes in the U.K., and they're scaling really rapidly this summer. Other angels in the program include Claire Johnson. She's the founder of The Up Group, which is an HR company in the UK, and Dorian Huber, uh, the founder of Lemon Cat, which is Germany's largest um, catering firm. So since then, I've really been waiting to hear about more of the diverse and innovative investments that these angels have been supporting. But it wasn't until Carmel's announcement last week that one of them has been announced publicly. So I've done digging into each one of the investors that were selected by the angel program. I've not found another angel investment that's been reported on and attributed to Atomico's program yet. Of course, not all angel investments are announced publicly, and it's likely that many remain in stealth mode. So we just really don't know some of the outcomes yet. But if the investment into Carmel is a sign of things to come, it's a good one as the investment has supported a team of two female co-founders with a product in a market market for, for children that's been largely overlooked and underserved by traditional investors. But while this investment announcement is exciting, I've got to say, I'd love to hear more outcomes from the program, especially as it was designed to diversify the investment landscape and support founders and companies that might look a bit different from the rest. Also, because at the time of Atomico's announcement, there was some conversation by other firms about building up their own angel programs to further open up pathways for different types of individuals to get involved in venture capital. That largely doesn't seem like it's yet to come to pass. Um, however, there remains a huge appetite to build and diversify the investor landscape in European VC. Diversity VC, which is a London-based nonprofit working to build a more inclusive venture capital landscape, they just launched an internship program this summer for future VCs from underrepresented backgrounds. They received over 800 applications for their program, and they were only able to accept 30 people. So it's really an area where there is a lot of appetite for growth. 
Um, and I would love to see more movement because I feel like diversity in, in investing and VC in Europe, something we talk about a lot, but we don't necessarily hear of a lot of outcomes coming from it yet. What do you think, Andre? Wow, that's an interesting number, about 800 applications for 30 spots. I'm not really surprised, though, uh, And uh, uh, about the program itself, uh, Atomico's program, I think is great. Uh, the first time I heard about it, I thought it's a very clever idea. And it's also about time, right? Because we uh, we have got uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, money uh, around uh, Europe for early stage startups. So it would be a great idea to uh, sort of think about the VCs themselves and uh, what they represent and what their background is and whether whether the distribution is fair and whether it's actually merit-based or is it based or uh, on uh, any sort of um, biases that could be conscious or unconscious or just dictated by uh, the background uh, or any other traits of the existing VCs. So yeah, I, I think it's great. I think it's amazing. Yeah. And they're supposed to launch a, they wanted this is something that they want to do yearly with the new cohorts of angel investors. So we'll see um, if that happens. I imagine we would hear any news on that um, in the fall again. Uh, but um, Sophia has been writing on Medium a little bit about some the program so far. And she has indicated that there will be more news to come um, in the, the coming weeks and months on that program. And we'll keep our eyes open. And I also had to, I also wanted to uh, quickly give a shout out to another initiative that's very similar. Uh, here in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, we actually have a uh, fund called ASIF, and that's basically a student-run uh, VC fund. That's also, I think, a pretty, pretty great idea, and it's a great way for uh, younger uh, people to see what uh, investing is like and to get the training that would be necessary if they decided to take this uh, path in the future. Excellent. Yeah, I know th there's also one in Germany as well. Um, so it's, it's a very great um, chance to get some experience there. Right. It is the interview time now. So let us uh, hear what uh, Sarah has to uh, tell us about the Albanian tech ecosystem and uh, build ecosystems in general, in particular in places where there are none. Let's listen together and uh, then move forward towards the recommendations. <laughs> Hello, uh, this is Andre Degler reporting today from the Pirate Summit conference in uh, Cologne, Germany. And today I have a chance to catch up with uh, Sarah Usinger. Uh, hey, uh, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for having me. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, Usinger. Great. So I did meet you for the first time, I think, last year, if I'm not mistaken, here at Pirate Summit. And uh, back then, I thought that I definitely should interview you for this podcast. And this time is finally possible. So if you can give a very brief overview of what you have been doing over the past 10 years, if that's possible. Okay, so I finished university here in Cologne um, in 2011. And then pretty much directly got into the, the business of entrepreneurship and startups because I had had been doing an internship during my university time with a startup in Switzerland. I really liked the scene and I uh, really liked the ecosystem. So my first real job was actually with uh, Startplatz, which is now the biggest incubation and acceleration program in the region. But we started off as a incubator and co-working space in 2012. And I was there for the first two years helping it uh, helping to build it up, uh, scaling it from uh, 900 square meters to 1600 square meters, helping to build up the ecosystem. 
And then after two years, I decided that I really want to go abroad. And I got the incredible chance to go to Iran for three years, where I co-founded and built the first professional startup accelerator or one of the first professional startup accelerators in Tehran, together with a team of very passionate Iranians. And yeah, I, I was there for three years, running four batches, doing different programs on the side and helping to, to build a piece of the Iranian startup ecosystem. And after three years, I came back to Germany and I didn't really know what I want to do next. So I ended up doing an entrepreneur in residence program in the Balkans. Um, which was launched by a friend of mine and I spent time working with accelerators and incubators in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbia, Northern Macedonia and Albania. And yes, then, then I spent a year now in Geneva where I was um, running a program for social enterprises and acceleration program for social enterprises or social impact ventures. And now got the chance to go back to the Balkans. So three weeks ago, I moved to Albania, back to the roots and helping to build the ecosystem there for the next two years. Wow, this is really interesting. So what exactly are you doing in Albania? So um, it's a program called EU for Innovation. And the goal of this program that is financed by the European Union is to strengthen the uh, Albanian Albanian startup ecosystem. So my job or our job is to, to work with the local um, ecosystem players to help them build better programs, support them on their journey, help them to connect them to the, the right people outside and inside of Albania and the region to make sure that they are running great programs and they are supporting the um, startups. So my role is more, or our role is more working with the ecosystem players instead of working with the startups. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and my really cool job is to build international linkages. So that's why I'm actually here to to meet a lot of people, talk to ecosystem players from around Europe to to learn from them and to make sure that we are connected to the right people to to move the ecosystem forward. Right. And how big is the team that's doing it? Um, like our team doing this international linkages, we are just two people, um, Erkens and I. Erkens is from Albania. I'm from, from outside Albania. But we are roughly eight people. Okay. Yeah, this is really interesting. So, and what is the ecosystem like there right now? Um, as we just heard at Pirate Summit, they, they just invested in a company in Albania. So it's up and coming. It's like, like a little secret at the, at the European coast. It's not that well known as a startup ecosystem. And yes, it's an early stage startup, startup ecosystem, but I've seen a lot of people really wanting to do things, wanting to build something for the local youth running programs to, to educate themselves and others about startups, but comparing it to other countries in Europe, it's, it's still in a very early stage, but very promising. How different is it uh, from uh, uh, from what you saw in Iran? Um, it's two different worlds because Iran is a country of uh, roughly 80 million people. So it's from size, it's comparable to, to Germany. So you have a lot of people graduating, a lot of young people, and they've been under the special uh, or in a special situation being under sanctions for 40 years. So a lot of things that that are coming from the US weren't available in Iran. So it was a lot of 
Like when I came there, it was a lot of not copy. Yeah, I, I don't like saying copy pasting, but adapting successful models from the rest of the world because it wasn't uh, it wasn't yet available in Iran, and Albania compared to this is like tiny in uh, in terms of population. I think it's a bit more than two millions. So so it's a completely different uh, setup because in Iran you kind of can become successful just in Iran. So there's a big enough market in Iran, but if you look at the whole Balkan region, there isn't there isn't one country that where you can actually become successful without like looking international at day one, which comes with a set of challenges because in Iran you, you we had this chance to let them grow in the local ecosystem, so they weren't exposed to international competition right from day one. Whereas here in in Albania. Yeah, if you wanna if you wanna be successful, you you have to to scale to other countries very quickly. Right. So you were basically busy with uh, building out an uh, ecosystem in Iran. Now you're doing the same job, pretty much at least uh, from the uh, from the outside uh, in Albania. So what does it take to build an ecosystem where there is barely one? That's that's the question of my life, I think. <laughs> And I was just talking to a friend that I actually want to do a PhD about it to, to figure out what are actually factors that are driving ecosystems. I think what is important is to have an initial set of people in the country who really want to do something because you can't and you shouldn't, in my opinion, come from the outside and tell people, oh, you have to, or you should do, or this is how you need to do it. Um, but I think, or in my opinion, it works best if you have like a, a group of local people who want to do things and who want to move things forwards and then provide them with the support they want from you the support they need from you and working with them and yeah, helping them to become more successful because, um, I don't think it's very useful if you're only focusing on bringing others to the country, because usually people don't stay, I will probably stay for two years, but I don't know if I'm going to stay longer. So the ideal uh, scenery is that they are, um, or that's what we are pushing us to, to work with the local ecosystem players that are already there and the people who want to move things and yeah, help them to get better. And they are usually also the people who know this country because I mean, I came to Iran and I knew a bit about Iran because I was there before, but I probably knew a 1% and it's, it's stupid if you're not relying on people who, who know the country in and out, who have related, who have connections, know the people, know the strengths and the weaknesses compared to just jumping in and trying to do things, which I don't think is, is very helpful. At the same time, I believe it's important to, it's really, really crucial and important to bring internationals to, to connect people to, to successful programs in other countries in the region, um, to make sure they learn what they need and they, they get the input they need. And I learned most looking at people and looking at people who are better than me doing things and yeah, imitating them, copying them, learning from them and seeing what they did well and trying to, to build my version of that. And what would be the main challenges that, uh, that, that you're seeing right now uh, in Albania? Um, I don't see challenges. I see opportunities. <laughs> but um, I think it's, it's really 
pushing things to the next level. There have been a lot of things going on, like some acceleration programs, some incubation programs over the past few years. Um, and now taking this and pushing it to the next level, creating sustainable, uh, sustainable programs who are running not only once or twice, but, but over a longer time and, and slowly build this ecosystem. Because I think what is important as well, what I learned in Iran and working with ecosystems is you can't buy experience. You have to let ecosystems grow organically because like, yes, I've seen things working and not working in other countries, but, um, you need to allow the ecosystem to develop because it's like, it's an, yeah, it's an, it's a process. And that's what I also saw here in Cologne. When we started Dartplatz, it was like in 2012, there was, there was a bit of pirate summit. I think it was the second season. There were, there were a few places, but the ecosystem was far away from, from where it is right now. But you can't like go from zero to hundred in, in a day. You have to go through different phases. And I think, yeah, um, bringing the ecosystem closer together, bring, building trust in the ecosystem, I think is important. That's usually like, I think that's very, very normal in every ecosystem that at the beginning people think, Oh, we might not talk to this person because they might take away stuff from us. But over time, everybody learns that, that sharing is more important and sharing experiences and growing together is crucial because you can't build an ecosystem with just one player. It's an ecosystem. It's not like one, one, one man show. I can see also now that in certain ecosystems, you basically see money being thrown at them in many, in many different ways from many different sources. And while some other ecosystems are in a more tight budget, do you think it makes a lot of difference at an early stage? I think in the, and that's my personal opinion. I think in the early stage, um, it doesn't make that big of a difference because you can do a lot with the right people and you don't need a lot of, a lot of, or yeah, millions, billions to, to get a system ecosystem started over time. And that's what we saw in Iran as well is that at some point you need money, you need investment, you need, um, the money to, to get experts and to, to bring the right people in. But at the beginning, I think it's more finding the right people who are willing to, to do things. We, I was speaking to one, um, open source organization in Tirana like a few days ago and they literally started off from a very small space and they were building the community and you need internet, you need a coffee machine and enough money to buy pizza. Like that's what they said. And they don't, they don't really need a lot of like financial support for doing that. And they've been a very stable part of the ecosystem, uh, growing a great community. You also mentioned uh, the other day at the Movers and Shakers uh, event uh, before Pirate Summit that the investment culture in Iran, for example, is not exactly what we might be used to in uh, uh, Western Europe, for example. Is it the same case? I mean, is it a similar case in Albania? Does it require certain, I don't know, education of the investors? I think... As, as we need education for entrepreneurs, we need education for investors because a lot of them will be first time investors when they are coming. There are a few funds investing into the Balkan 
region who have been doing this in other countries in, in the Balkans. So they are way more experienced. They know what they do. They know how to do their due diligence. They know how to, or they know what a, what a fair deal is as well. But I think, yeah, it's, it's educating both parts. And that's what we had in Iran because I'm, I'm still very new to the Albanian ecosystem, but looking back to Iran, yeah, it was part of our job to, to educate both the startups and the, the investors about what it means to invest because otherwise you're, you're screwing the startups at some point because not because people are evil, but just because people don't understand like the consequences of, of deals where, where startups are giving away a lot of shares at the beginning. And yeah, and people want to learn. It's not, it's not like you need to force them, but people want to learn and they want to become better. And that's the same for investors and startups. Right. So, and then my last question then, uh, when building up an ecosystem, how much do you think should the government or corporates or NGOs or any other actors should be involved in, uh, in this process? Or, or does it, or does it have to be like a grassroots sort of thing coming directly from entrepreneurs and maybe some volunteers or whatever? Um, I read this book, I think it's by Brett Feld about building startup ecosystems like a few years ago. And I think he was very right when he was saying, you need all these players. You need a government that is supporting, you need, um, educational institutions, you need NGOs and you need them all working together to build this ecosystem. But I heard it at the Movers and Shakers Summit at some point where people were, yes, we need all these players, but it always have to be done for the startups and for, for their advancement. So, um, yeah, like the government should support by providing better laws, providing, and that's in general, that's not, not like only limited to Albania by building, yeah, getting out of the way and making it easier for people to start, run and build uh, companies that can scale. And that's the same for, for universities. And that's what I've been seeing in Cologne as well, that universities are getting better to, to actually being a supportive environment and they don't need to, to do everything and not each of these players doesn't need to do everything, but I believe they should do what they can do best, which is it's different things. The government is best in making laws compared to universities with, who are best in, in educating people and giving them access to knowledge and an environment where they can learn. And it should all be, be targeted or the, the overall goal should be supporting startups and listening to startups. I think that's important. Okay, that's it for my questions then. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah, and uh, good luck in uh, Tirana. Thank you very much. Now, that was great. And uh, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. It's still myself, uh, Andrew Degler, together with Natalie Novik. And it's recommendation time. Uh, Natalie, your time to shine. You're, you only you have a recommendation today. So what is it you wanted to suggest us to read or listen to? Yeah. So last week on the podcast, Andre, in your recommendations, you talked about the opportunities for investment into podcasting. And you shared a really interesting report on the state of the podcast ecosystem. And one of the things that we talked about in our conversation was that there's not a whole lot of activity on the podcasting front in Europe as compared to the U.S., with the exception of Spotify, who is uh, planning to be investing very heavily into the podcast ecosystem. 
But maybe someone was listening because a day after the podcast went live, we found an announcement that Podimo, which is a Danish company that has the aim of becoming the, quote, Netflix of podcasts, end quote, they raised a 6 million euro round led by eVentures in Germany and Hardcore Capital from Denmark. And Podimo will launch in Denmark and in Germany in September. And what's interesting is that they will be offering a, quote, new and fair model that caters to the podcast financially, unquote. So I translated that from Danish. Um, but what they're really trying to do is try to solve the financial side of podcasting. Um, there's already some critiques. They haven't even launched yet, but it, it, some are concerned that Podimo will be paywalling podcasts. Um, you might have heard some of the furrow over Luminary um, a few weeks back. But in any case, I will be looking forward to see what th this looks like. Um, they plan for earnings to be based on subscribers and the amount of time listened to the podcast. Um, but in any case, for our Danish and German listeners, keep your eye out for Podimo, which is launching soon. And maybe you will find the Tech EU podcast on there um, in the future. I will see about that. Uh, but I, it's, uh, I don't really understand what it means that uh, they will launch in Denmark and Germany. Like, how do you, how do you launch like in two, uh, only in two countries? Uh, if you are working on the podcast market, which is generally global and like, I, I, I don't really, I don't really get it. Maybe they will just take payments from only from those countries. Uh, like subscribers can be only from those countries, but then the podcasts would be from all over. And of course, I do see the issue that people are taking with it because like from the description, and I admittedly did not uh, dig any deeper than that, from the description, it seems like that uh, uh, they may just uh, sort of paywall the podcasts that normally uh, were available for were, were available for free, right? So that's of course, uh, that's of course not great. And this is what Luminary sort of uh, tried to do. I don't know if that's what their plan to do. But there's still a lot of unknowns um, out there about about this platform. But I think it's kind of a positive sign that it's raised investment before launch and it's already raising attention before it's publicly available. It's something that you don't often um, hear too often um, with European startups. So I think that's something that that it is is an interesting um, character to to watch and follow along. Right. I mean, the very big argument uh, to be made here in general is if you want to monetize uh, podcasts in the Netflix sort of way, uh, then the only way that I can see to do it is uh, by having exclusives, which is how Netflix monetizes itself uh, in uh, many cases. And this is what, uh, what it would be like for platforms. So we're going to definitely see exclusives on spotify we are already seeing them actually uh, we will probably see exclusives on uh, luminary they have uh, promised it and uh, i wouldn't be surprised if podimo uh, had uh, had the same idea and then what happens if you want to listen to something that's on spotify and to something that's on podimo and to something that's on, Lim on luminary and then you have to watch uh, paid for th pay for three different uh, subscriptions or you will just uh, miss out on uh, certain things and another question is of course uh, how this 
whole new sort of arrangement uh, would impact uh, the traditional free podcast uh, uh, landscape and whether the uh, the best podcast and the most professionally uh, produced uh, podcast, whether they would actually all move to this uh, monetizable uh, platform. So there, there's a huge discussion to be to be had here. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting market segment, and I think it's it's, it's a lot of opportunity, but. Because there are so many questions that still remain, it does make it um, a very fascinating um, place to watch for developments. Yeah, absolutely. So as for this particular podcast, that's about it uh, for that. I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. If you are not a subscriber yet, uh, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app, uh, even on Spotify, even on Luminary, I suppose, uh, and uh, hopefully on Podimo soon. Uh, if you are listening on iTunes of all apps, uh, do take a minute uh, to leave us a review there. Uh, this will help us uh, uh, grow the audience this will help the others find the show and this will help uh, to form the informed european tech community uh, tell a friend or colleague about the podcast if it is relevant for them and follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu audio engineering for our podcast is done by sound pulse that's sound pulse.com if you have any questions suggestions and opinions please feel free to email us at uh, andre at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu natalie Thank you so much for uh, joining today. Thanks, Andre. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week, and uh, we're going to talk to you next Wednesday. Bye bye. <laughs>